Amen. Welcome, church family. This is the portion of our time together when we open our Bibles together as a family. And when we do so, we actually do so expecting that we're going to get to hear from God himself. Would you join me in prayer to that end? Lord, you're big and you love us. That makes us glad. Now let the words that I say and let the thoughts we all think be pleasing in your sight. For Jesus' sake. Amen. I've confessed before from this pulpit that when I went to college, I got into something that I intended never to get into, and that's uh, country music, of course. And one of the classic country songs that kind of was part of getting me hooked was one by Tim McGraw. It's a song, maybe you've heard... um, It's about a man in his early 40s, a lot of life before him, and then he gets this diagnosis that he doesn't have much time left to live, and so what does he do? He went skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu, right? So um, the first time I heard that song, um, I had a moment. It was one of those like, I'm not crying, you're crying, those kind of moments, um, And part of the reason I think a song like that is moving when we're reflecting on somebody who uh, is figuring out how to live life knowing that there isn't much life left to live is because it causes us to think, it causes me to think, well, what would I do if I knew I only had a little bit of time left to live? How would I spend my remaining time on earth? In our scripture text today, Peter suggests that actually that's kind of exactly how we ought to live here on earth, as, as, as people who are living as though the end is right around the corner. Would you turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 4? 1 Peter chapter 4, starting in verse 7. As you're turning there, just a reminder of what we're doing this fall. We've got a few weeks left to conclude our 1 Peter series. 1 Peter is a letter written by one of Jesus' disciples named Peter. About 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, he's writing to a people that he addresses as exiles, he calls them, uh, because this world isn't their home, but also they're starting to feel what it feels like to be an exile on earth, even though many of them probably were in the same towns they grew up in, because they're being pushed to the margins, increasingly so, in society for their faith. They're starting to be mocked and ridiculed for their Christian beliefs. And where we left off in chapter 4, verse 6, Peter was telling his readers about this final judgment that's in store. Now, it was meant to be an encouragement to them because at that final judgment, they would be vindicated if they belonged to Christ. And, and, and those who have been mocking and reviling them would have to answer to God. So today, as we move on to verse 7 through 11, Peter's going to elaborate on some implications of the fact that at any moment, it could be the end. Let's look for that as I read verses 7 through 11. Follow along with me. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. 
As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that, in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. The big idea I want to draw out from that text is this. Let's live today as if Christ might return tomorrow. Let's live today as if Christ might return tomorrow. Let me show you the scripture, uh, the structure of this text that we just looked at. Here's our scripture text that we just read. It starts with a statement. The end of all things is at hand. And by that, Peter doesn't mean that um, he believes that Jesus will necessarily come back during his lifetime. Instead, what he means is the next great event in salvation history will be the return of Christ. There are no other events coming in between the time he's writing and the return of Christ, right? Christ has already come in human flesh. Christ has already died. Christ has already risen from the dead. Christ has already ascended into heaven and sent his Holy Spirit to birth a new church. The next major event in the storyline is that he's going to return to bring his own home once again. And so, in that sense, the end of all things is at hand. And then this, the passage unfolds from there with this big word, therefore. Everything from here on is a therefore, because the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, and he gives four different things to do. So we're going to just walk through the four different things that are called for in First Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. First, be clear-minded for prayer. Clear-minded for prayer. That's how I'm summarizing the second half of verse 7. Look at that again. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Now, I don't know if you struggle with this, but I'll admit that I absolutely do, and it's something I've been convicted of uh, from several different angles recently. When I know that time is short, when I don't have much time to get things done, when, when, when things are going to have to get chopped from the to-do list today, my tendency, to my shame, is that prayer will be one of the first things that I'll cut out to make room for the tasks that need to be done. I guess that what it is, is it feels like the consequences are less if I cut out prayer than if I cut out some of the tasks that I believe so strongly need to be done. Verse 7 is actually saying it ought to be just the opposite. Do you see that there? When, when he says, the end of all things is at hand, therefore, be self-controlled, sober-minded, for the sake of your prayers. Peter's thinking about the end being at hand, and he says, hey, make sure you're not hindered in your prayers. That's the first thing that comes to mind when he thinks about the end being at hand. In other words, as the end approaches, that should be cause for us to ramp up our prayer life, not to push our prayer life to the side. How do we ramp it up? Well, it says be self-controlled, sober-minded. What do those mean? Self-controlled means alert, sane, clear-minded. It means it involves evaluating situations maturely and correctly. And then that second term, sober-minded, that is the opposite of the hedonistic mindset back in chapter 4, verse 3. It, it means not to be controlled by selfish pursuits. So together, what do these have to say about our prayers? What do they have to do with our prayers? I think maybe what Peter's saying is that our prayers will be more fervent, more effective, maybe. Now, certainly, they will be more robust and fruitful if, A, our minds are informed about what we're praying about so that we can pray 
for what is really going on around us, and B, that our minds aren't clouded by pursuit of selfish pleasures. Right? I want to return here for a moment, though, just to, just to the fact that this is just this is a wildly counterintuitive teaching in our achievement-driven day to say that we would get more serious about prayer as the end is approaching, right? I just want us to reflect for a moment on just how much that flies in the face of everything that is ingrained in us here on the North Shore, right? It would be like if I was a farmer and I told you, hey, today is my last day of the season to harvest my crops. Anything that I don't get today is going to die in the frost tonight. It'll be lost. So there's an urgency. The end is at hand. I got to make this happen today. Therefore, I'm going to stay inside until noon. Right? You'd be like, what? What are you talking about? Stay inside until noon? You're not going to get the job done. What if you don't get it done? Right? I think this call to prioritize prayer with the end at hand feels like that to us. At least it does to me. I'll just speak for myself. Because there's something pretty critical about the Christian faith that we don't get. At least, at least that we don't get super deeply. And that's that the Christian faith was never about what we are ought to do. It's about what's been done for us. The Christian faith is not about what we ought to do. It's about what's been done for us. I, I, I think that if we really, really believed that, like deep down believed it, we'd become prayer first type people, increasingly so. Um, because the person who prioritizes prayer over working is declaring in that stance, their dependence on God, is living in such a way that explicitly acknowledges to God, I am inadequate and nothing that I do on my best efforts can even bring anything to you or produce any results without your hand being on it. So if I would maybe crystallize a takeaway from verse 7, I might say it like this, when time is short, drop everything else to start with prayer. Instead of cutting prayer first, drop everything else to start with prayer. Maybe just one more analogy just to kind of close off this section. It would be like, it's, it's like a, a vineyard, someone tending a vine, right? You cut some branches and hope that your total fruit will be more, even though there are fewer branches that the fruit is coming from, right? Same way with our prayer lives and praying first as time is short, the hope and the expectation and the promise from Scripture is that even a little bit of effort that's breathed into by God's Holy Spirit is going to be more fruitful than all of a whole day full of our human efforts without God being a part of it. When time is short, let's drop everything else to start with prayer. Second, love earnestly. Love earnestly. Let's read that in verse 8. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. Have you ever moved away from a town, moved away from a neighborhood, and before you left, you, uh, it was really important to you to kind of clear things up with somebody, like clear the air with somebody. Like, I, I know we've, we've been at odds from time to time, but I, I want to make sure we leave on a good note. There might be a similar dynamic here, I think, in the urgent call to love earnestly in light of the fact that the end of all things is at hand. Like, there's no option given here for our love for one another just to be lip service. We see that in the word earnestly in verse 8. It means we, we ought to pour our hearts into it despite how messy it's going to be. And Alex spoke about it earlier in the service, right? It's like a family. 
family involves mess when you live life as a family and you love each other through that mess. You work through it as family. And that's the sort of love, that family love, that earnest love that can cover over sins. That's interesting language, isn't it? In verse 8, that this sort of love would cover over sins. That's a loose quote from Proverbs 10, verse 12. But covering over sins isn't covering up sins. I think that's important to clarify, right? This isn't the sort of uh, so-called love that just sweeps everything under the rug and pretends like it didn't happen. And, you know, anytime it gets brought up, you tell them, no, 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 we don't talk about that. That's, that's not what this is talking about. This is talking about a different sort of love. Love that covers over sins is the sort of love that a family has with one another that, hey, honestly, we know we're stuck with each other. And so when we're living in close proximity to each other, we know we're going to hurt each other. We know we're going to annoy each other from time to time. We know we're going to disappoint each other. And, and rifts will grow in our, in our relationships and within our families from time to time. But if our love for one another is earnest, then we'll do whatever it takes to heal those rifts. We'll forgive one another. We will restore one another. We'll talk about it until we can move forward together instead of allowing the divide to increase. Now, if some of us are honest, we don't, we don't always want that with our church family, that, that level of depth in relational connection. Right? We're actually happy to kind of come on Sunday mornings and say hi to a few people, maybe, maybe join a life group and attend here and there. But um, as long as it stays surface level enough that it doesn't get into the messy, the messy type of relational living where we have to like hurt each other and then forgive one another and actually like work through it. But although that way of doing life in church and family and community is easier, I'm not sure we're permitted to go down that road. And, and I say that because out of the four instructions Paul gives us, I mean Peter gives us in this text, which one does he tag the words above all on? It's this one, right? Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. Um, so if, if this morning it feels like a chore to cultivate this earnest love, if it doesn't feel like a delight, then what we need is a change of heart. And the only thing I know and that's powerful enough to change our hearts in this way is to reflect deeply on the love of Jesus, that earnest love of Jesus that despite all of our rebellion against him was strong enough to cover over, quite literally cover over our sins. Time and time again, when we spit in his face, he earnestly loved us, pursued us, tracked us down, covered over our sins. And, and that has a way, when we reflect on it, of producing a gratitude in us that wells up into wanting to love one another with that same sort of earnest love that was extended to ourselves. If it's important to clear the relational ledger, so to speak, when we're moving from one place to another, how much more important is it when our earthly lives are about to come to a close? So maybe I'd just encourage this. Why not clear the relational ledger today with somebody, somebody in your life? Even before you leave this church, there's somebody that you feel like things have been kind of off with. What if you grow before you even leave this building? Or if it's, if it's somebody who's not here, maybe it's the first thing you do when you go home today to call them up on the phone and just say, listen, you know, time is short here on this earth. I was reminded of that today. I, I don't want anything to be between us. I don't want there to be a rift. I, I want to love with the sort of love that covers over sins. 
How can we make that happen between us? How can we be restored to right relationship again? Clear-minded for prayer. Love earnestly. Third one is not unrelated to the call to love earnestly, and it's, it's to show hospitality. Take a look at that again in verse 9. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. I think it's worth acknowledging at this point that um, it's not easy to show hospitality, to practice that. There's a cost to it. There's a real cost. Um, when my family shows up at somebody's house when they have us over, there is a cost to that. Like something is almost certainly going to get broken in their house. I'm just realizing that. Um, like Halloween, I was like so ready for it too. I was like on my dad game at our neighbor's house down the street. We're just getting to know them. It's like, I'm like, I'm, I am not going to let my kid break anything in this house. But then it just happens so quick, you know, just, just, just seize an opportunity. And then the toy he's playing with is down the air duct in their house, just like that. And I knew it was happening. I knew it was going to happen, but it happened anyway. And so it's not confusing to me that Peter would say, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Because the most natural thing for all of us, when you have the Higgins family over to your house, is that after we leave, you would grumble. Um, There's a cost to it. But the call, I think, for all of us, in all seriousness, as believers, is that we would look at that cost, that we'd, that we'd uh, plan for it. And, and by cost, I'm talking about the monetary cost of having people in your home, the emotional cost, the energy cost, that it, and, uh, and every other, the, the time cost. We'd plan for that, and we'd embrace that cost joyfully as part of the family life that we're called to in Scripture. And, and, you know, we've talked about this here before, but it's worth clarifying anytime we bring up hospitality. Let's make sure we understand what biblical hospitality is. It's, it's not Martha Stewart perfection. It's not entertaining. It's not putting on a show. Rather, it's letting people into our lives and specifically into our homes in such a way that includes letting them into our mess, actually, in such a way that they see a lived picture, whether they're believers or unbelievers, they see a lived picture of the gospel, the good news that we have based our lives on. They see it lived out. They see a tangible picture of what that could look like in action. And our priority as Christians on hospitality is driven by Jesus, who is the ultimate hospitable one, is he not? Like, think about it. He could have remained at a safe distance from us up in heaven, leaving us out there. He could have left us as orphans. But instead, he invited us in, didn't he? He purchased our adoption at the greatest cost to himself. And when we reflect on that and we're captivated by that vision of hospitality that was extended to us, it's hard to go on thinking of ourselves that we're too important to take the time and energy and money and resources to have people over. It's hard to go on thinking of ourselves that our time and energy and resources are too precious to uh, take the time to be hospitable. God commands us to be hospitable because in that one simple act, having somebody over for a meal, for example, we can give them a foretaste in this life of what's in store in the life to come. So, action step, pretty straightforward. Who are you going to have over? Um... Many of our neighbors and friends who maybe wouldn't step foot in a church uh, would gladly take a free meal in our homes. 
And what if the homes of the families at North Suburban Church and the singles at North Suburban Church, for that matter, on weeknights, on weekends, uh, were buzzing with gospel activity happening around our tables? What if that's what we became known for? Maybe just one last note on hospitality before we move on. Our sisters and brothers who are ministering around the world in contexts that are hostile to Christianity tell us that to the extent that our own context becomes increasingly hostile to Christianity, we should expect that hospitality will become more and more important to what we do as Christians here. That's because as our free speech gets more and more restricted, possibly, in the world out there, our homes will always remain that last place where we can have open conversation about the gospel and the, the living hope that we've been given uh, that exists in our hearts. And it'll always be a place that people can be uh, welcomed in and where misperceptions about Christians can be cleared up as they see it in action around our tables as we break bread together in that very equalizing act. So, be clear-minded for prayer. Love earnestly. Show hospitality. Finally, use our gifts to serve one another. Use our gifts to serve one another. Look with me at verses 10 and 11 once again. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Imagine you lend me your car and you lend me your car so that I can go pick up groceries for you. You say, hey, hey, can you take my car and go get me some groceries? I say, sure. But a couple hours later, I'm not back. And so you give me a call. Hey, what's going on? Are you coming back with the groceries? And I say, ah, haven't gotten the groceries yet, but I'm having so much fun with your car. I'm down in the city. I found, I found some people. I'm, I'm, I've been doing some street racing. And this is a thrill. Um, or what if you called me? And we're like, hey, where are you? Are the groceries coming back? And you're like, actually, I haven't left the driveway yet. Sorry, I just kind of got caught up listening to the radio. I'm still sitting out front. I'll, I'll go now, though. I'll go now. How would you feel in those couple of scenarios? Right? There, there's a couple problems, at least two problems, with what's, what I've done there. Um, one is I didn't get the job done that I said I would do. Right? But there's another problem, another layer of it, that you gave me your car for a purpose... And in the one scenario, I'm using it for a different purpose. In another scenario, I'm not using it for that purpose at all. And the question I want to ask is, what if we are guilty of that? Not with each other's cars, but with the spiritual gifts that God has given us, that he's entrusted to us more specifically. Look at that in verse 10. Um, It says that if we've been given gifts, which each of us has, according to verse 10, we should use it to serve one another. That's the purpose for which they're given to us. In other words, the gifts that we've been given aren't given to us for our own edification, like taking a car for a joyride. They aren't given to us to just sit there dormant, like sitting in the driveway without going and doing anything with it. So maybe I could just say this directly. Friend, if you are here this morning and you're using the car, so to speak, for... Uh, if you're not using the car for the purpose for which it was lent to you, if you aren't using your gifts, in other words, in order to bless others in the family of faith, then what the Bible teaches is that you are robbing us. 
you are robbing all of us of a blessing that God intends to give to us through the use and exercise of your gifts. In other words, it's not some sort of bonus that you use your gifts. We are expecting that. We rely on you using it, and God gave them to you for that purpose. And I use that language of loaning um, because of verse 10 calling us stewards, right? If we were the owners of these gifts, then it would be our prerogative to do whatever we wanted with them. But we're not owners. We are caregivers, caretakers of these gifts. And so we have a responsibility to use them in line with the intent of the true owner, the one who gave them to us in the first place. And Peter calls it God's varied grace. There in verse 10, you see that at the end of verse 10? Because this grace takes different forms. Each of us is given at least one gift, beginning of verse 10, but, but your gift and mine may look very different. Peter groups them in verse 11 into two categories, speaking gifts and serving gifts. Right? Very broadly, generally speaking. Some examples of speaking gifts would be teaching the Bible, uh, preaching, uh, sharing a prophetic word, an apt word for a given moment, uh, exhorting someone, sharing a word of wisdom, passing on a word of knowledge that you have received, praying for someone out loud, encouraging them, evangelizing. Those are all speaking sorts of gifts, right? If in that list I just shared... You heard something that you've been entrusted with. You say, oh, I, I've, I've done something like that at some point and felt like God was using me in it. What's the call for us who have been given those speaking gifts? Look in verse 11. What does it say to us? If you've been given a speaking gift, whoever speaks, speak as one who speaks oracles of God. Or your translation might say, who speaks the very words of God. What does that mean? What does it mean to speak the very words of God? Well, the alternative would be to speak merely human words, right? So it would, be, it would be if I, as a preacher, got up here, and instead of trying to expound for you what God's Word is saying, I just got up here and gave you some cute alliteration, told you some funny stories, and called it a day, right? That would be speaking merely human words as opposed to speaking the words of God. Or it would be you in the morning as you're sending your kids off to school, and you want to give them a word of encouragement, it would be instead of giving them a word from God and God's word, a sure word that they can take with them in their day, it would be giving them some kind of, you know, pithy phrase from Instagram about live, laugh, love today, right? What this is calling us to is if we're going to use our gifts to bless somebody, our speaking gifts specifically to bless somebody, if we're going to open our mouths to speak life into somebody's life, let's give each other the real thing, the word of God. But there's not only speaking gifts, there's serving gifts, right? So if you're wondering what is a serving gift, it would be showing hospitality. It would be helping someone out with a project that they're working on. It would be gifts of administration, financial acumen, right? Um, trade skills, the gift of giving, the uh, gift of skill with a musical instrument. If you heard something in that list that is a gift that you've been entrusted with, that you've used fruitfully at some point, or another, let's look. What is the call? What's the instruction for those who have been given serving gifts? It says, whoever serves, serve as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. Serve as one who serves as by the strength that God supplies. What does that mean? Well, again, maybe it's helpful to think of the alternative. The alternative to serving by the strength God supplies is serving by our own strength, right? There's two problems when we try to serve God by our own strength, at least two. One, we burn out 
quickly because we're trying to produce fruit and is producing fruit is something that we were never able we're never able to do even on our best efforts. Secondly though, serving God on our own strength by our own strength has a way of growing not our faith but rather our pride. It has a way of leading us to say more and more frequently, look what I did, at least in our hearts, look what I did, instead of, look what he did. Look what he did is what the call of a Christian using his or her spiritual gifts is supposed to be. That's, that's supposed to be the result of all of our use of spiritual gifts. Did you see that in verse 11? Speaking gifts, serving gifts, and then it says, all of it is in order that what? In order that in everything God may be glorified. Not that we would be glorified, but that God would be glorified through Jesus Christ. In other words, God gets glory from the use of our gifts when we speak using his words, not our own, and when we serve on his strength, not our own. I'll say that again. God gets glory from our use of our spiritual gifts when we speak using his words, not our own, and when we serve using the strength that he provides, not our own strength. Now, if we use our gifts that way, we might miss out on some accolades that otherwise we could receive, right? Doesn't it feel nice when somebody tells you you're smart? Somebody tells you that uh, something you did was skillful? Somebody uh, tells you you're productive? We can get all those pats on the back if we chase after them hard enough. But if we're chasing, on those, chasing after those pats on the back, we are robbing God from the glory that belongs to him. And did you see that that's exactly how verse 11 closes out? To him belong the glory and dominion forever and ever. The glory and dominion are his, not ours, and so our use of the gifts he's given ought to reflect that. So takeaway, maybe from this fourth part, there's a few different directions we could go with it, but maybe just a first takeaway in my mind, is find a place to serve if you haven't already. Within our church family, use your gifts to serve the body. If you've been here for any length of time um, and you've been worshiping here at North Sub, we're so glad you're here. We're so glad that you're settled in and you're, you're now considering this your home. If that's the case for you, we, we want to make sure you know that this is a spectator-free family of faith here. No spectators. Um, we believe that time is short as Peter said in verse 7. And so for you to sit on the bench with your gifts not being used to bless everyone else actually robs us from what God wants to bless us with through you. So talk to one of us if you've got a gift and uh, you want to look for a place to serve. We'll get you plugged in. One of us in leadership will. Reminder of what our big idea is today. Let's live today as if Christ might return tomorrow. Let's live today as if Christ might return tomorrow. Think back to that Tim McGraw song again, if you've heard it. The way the refrain ends is with that guy in his early 40s who's trying to make the most of life, knowing that he only has a short time left. What does he say? Someday I hope you get the chance to, what? Live like you were dying. Someday I hope you get the chance to live like you were dying. Christians, we have been given that chance. And actually, it's not just a chance, it's actually a calling. We are called to live like we were dying. But the bucket list that we check off in our final days here as we wait for the end 
um, is different, looks different from the world's bucket list. The world tells us that the things to do are skydiving, Rocky Mountain climbing, quite literally. See the world. Um, experience all the experiences you can for yourself. I hope you saw on the four, the four things that were laid out by Peter, as he thinks about the end being at hand, they were much more other-centered, weren't they? Much more other-centered. Be clear-minded for prayer. Love earnestly. Show hospitality. Use our gifts to serve one another. All four, though, are motivated out of grateful response to our Lord Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve, who came not primarily to be loved, but to love us. And that same Jesus is coming back again. The end of all things is at hand because our Lord Jesus will come back again. The question is, will he find us living like we're dying? Or or more accurately to our text, will he find us living like the end is at hand? Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, forgive us for becoming complacent in this life, relaxing as though you will delay indefinitely in your return. Lord, give us the sort of urgency that is called for here as we live knowing that the end is at hand. And, and And help our living with the end at hand to be distinct from how the world calls us to do so. Help our priorities to be noticeably different from the priorities that our consumeristic culture tries to push at us. Help us to be a people who live for your glory and yours alone, and increasingly so as that day approaches. In Jesus' name, amen.